This is Spillers. I'm Robert Huckman Jr. And for good reason, what you're about to hear was recorded in a dust-covered car in a parking lot of a Circle K in Mesa, Arizona. This is Patrick Michael Finn. All right, this one's called The Wreckage of Better Days. She gathered her breasts into her arms and wondered why they never spoke to her. He didn't dare tell her to move away from the window, that it would be a sin for the neighbors to see her like that. He was frankly too frightened and in fact hadn't slept a whole night in six weeks. At first it was just a bunch of ugly talk whenever she slipped into one of her black moods. I'm going to bash your head in with a baseball bat while you're sleeping. I'm going to stick a 38 in your mouth and blow your brains all over that ever-loving field. There wasn't a baseball bat in the house, nor a 38, nor a field. But before he knew it, she was pulling the kitchen knives on him and spraying Lysol in his face. And then yesterday morning, while he was watching television on the couch, she came out of the bedroom with a bottle of charcoal fluid and squirted it through a cigarette lighter all over his clothes. He shot up, his arms spread in a spinning windmill of screams, and tottered into the shower on a rolling ripple of flames. What won't kill me are your knives or your fire. What will is how lonely this leaves me, because I'm lonely over this and Jesus H. Christ angry over it too. Man can't watch television without his woman charging in and lighting him on fire. Hell, Darna, what climbed up your cactus? You know damn well I scare easy to start with. I'm just a little dude hardly half your size, and I don't honestly know what you're going to pull next. I really don't. Pistols, switchblades, hand grenades under my Buick. But honest to God, you sure know how to touch a man. Wish you'd climb on into the shower and wrap your legs around me this minute. If I could fit Phoenix on a ring, you know I would. Little office buildings would sparkle like diamonds, even brighter than stars. But then to think about how you keep hurting me, of how much I've given up for you. I used to have a whole load of regular friends, the kind of guys who'd bring beer and lawn chairs. Old Jerry Jack, Sewell, Home Gary, P. I really miss those dudes. Miss how we'd set up under the mesquite tree with our beers and watch all the trucks yonder in the distance on the interstate light up the desert at night while we lit ourselves up on beer and every once in a while passing an ass-pocket bottle of Southern Comfort. Sewell with his guitar and home Gary's puppets. Good times with good friends under a good yellow summer moon. And you go and deprive me of that singing those demented songs, making Sewell play until his fingers bled. You were too much for my friends. Hell, you were even too much for P. But I thought I could handle you, rein you in, give you a chance to find your own right size in such a world of love I could give you. Maybe that style of thought just made everything worse. Maybe I just paved too much road for you to run, and now there is no road left, only wreckage. The pain of his scorched flesh was gorgeous, perfect, radiant. He was dizzy getting out of the shower, and when he looked in the mirror he almost fell over, 
a blackened patchwork of burns over his shoulders and chest. Darna, he called. Darna, come in here and look at what you did this time. Darna! He found her pacing outside the Circle K with an RC Cola, begging for change. The sun was dropping fast. The whole hot day had up and disappeared, and he wasn't quite sure where it had gone. But he watched his woman through the bug-smeared windshield, washed in the red glow of sunset. Her white breeches were dirty, and her pink cowboy top was stained with what looked like grease. His busted-down old Buick looked like a stray green geezer parked among the Saturday night beer traffic of motorcycles and pickup trucks, their drivers darting right past Darna in her outstretched hand. He maneuvered himself out of the car, shirtless and gingerly so as not to disturb his burns. Come on, Darna, he said. Why don't you say we head home? He didn't know what she'd say back. This thrower of bad words and of knives and fire. He braced himself. For what, he had no idea. But in her smile lingered no evil, and no wicked malice shined in her eyes. Had she already forgotten? He wanted her. She fixed her eyes on him and said, What in the high hell happened to you? Everything that was happening in my life around the time of the bipolar diagnosis and my hospitalizations and uh, the erratic, unpredictable time that that was for me, for my, <clears throat> for my wife, for my son, uh, went into that story. But I will say, as I wrote the story, I had no idea that any of that <laughs> was part of the story. I really didn't. I was not at all conscious of this story illustrating that period of my life. It wasn't until I had written it and my wife read it many months after I wrote it, she said, this, this story's about us. What did you start with on on this story? You said you start with a character trait or an image. What did you start with? I here? started with the first sentence. She gathered her breasts into her arms and wondered why they never spoke to her. It was a line I'd written almost, uh, I'd say, seven years before. Um, and I tried to use it as a springboard for a few different plots and a few different characters. Uh, but they always came out too cartoonish, too flip, too comic book as opposed to comedic um like silly i know there's anything wrong with comic books but like silly just silly i just couldn't do anything with it but that line about this woman taking her breasts into her arms and wondering why they didn't talk to her <laughs> that haunted me I, I kept thinking about it every now and then 
And so I got out this envelope in my top drawer where I keep all the stories in progress or failed stories or whatever you want to call them. And I found that line again and I thought, well, maybe I should bring this line back to life. Was it as hard for you as it was for the characters in the story? For a period, yes. Yes, it was. Um, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, I was, as I said, I was acting erratically, um, unpredictably. Really wasn't myself. And I had no idea what was wrong. There were times when I was convinced, absolutely convinced, that my wife was out to get me, that she wanted to do me in in some way. I don't. I didn't think she was out to kill me, but or even physically hurt me, but that she had the ammunition and desire to do to do me wrong. And it made me crazy. I was always accusing her of, you know doing things behind my back and she wasn't um all the things I accused her of in hindsight I just you know in my best lucid self I think are ridiculous ridiculous charges not long before I was hospitalized it was one of the strangest things I'd done and I was completely sober I hadn't had anything to drink no drugs nothing um my wife found me several miles from our house and I was a little dirty and I was just wandering with no shoes on and I don't really remember leaving the house in that condition and again I was completely sober but I was not lucid I was you know, deranged um, I hadn't hurt myself for anything but I wasn't really not really sure what I was after but that was a pretty sad afternoon. It was, yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon. My wife kind of has her ear to the rail when it comes to mental illness because she grew up with a sister who has severe bipolar disorder with um, schizoaffective features. So, while this was tragic in a lot of ways for my wife, it was not completely foreign territory either. So she had maybe learned to, to spot more readily the differences between normal, normal behavior uh, with someone in her life and, and the, the less normal version. Absolutely. She knew um, that something wasn't right with me. I mean, how could you not finding your husband a few miles away from home without any shoes and dirty? I mean, that's that's not a red flag. I don't. I'm not really sure what it is. And when I was finally hospitalized, I was talking to a psychiatrist who admitted me, and 
I was speaking very rapidly about everything that had been happening in my life. And he said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and diagnose you bipolar. And at first, I thought, oh my God, bipolar. And then within almost the same breath, I sighed with relief. Like, okay, finally, I know what's wrong. And somebody can maybe help me with, you know, medication or something. I mean, I certainly knew what bipolar disorder was. Didn't know everything about it. I still had a, a lot to learn. So... Yes, that period of my life was, I think, as difficult as one spouse setting another spouse on fire. It's always when I first start talking about it, I, I tense a little bit, but the more I talk about it, it's, it's actually a lot easier. It helps. Like, I feel that being out with it and not hiding is incredibly therapeutic when it comes to accepting and understanding what the illness is and how the illness functions. I don't, like, I guess the more I talk about it, the, the less I fear it, um, the more I can accept it too. Because when I, I guess when I speak it, it becomes even more of a reality. You know, other people hear it, you know, so I better be bipolar if I'm telling everyone. <laughs> At the time I wrote this story, I was on um, I was on several different psychiatric medications for bipolar disorder. The year before, uh, I'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and hospitalized several times, and so they'd given me a lot of um, mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, which helped. They certainly helped, but I was kind of over medicated and kind of in a, a zombie state. I, my wife would come into the living room and find me just sort of staring at the wall for long periods of time. And I was stable, but I, you know, I wasn't me. And I was trying to write and trying to write the kind of longer stories I used to write. And I just didn't have the focus. Um, I, I couldn't hold everything I wanted to hold in a story in my brain. said to myself, you know, it doesn't need to be that long. You can probably tell the story in just a few pages. It doesn't need to be 40, 50 pages. It really doesn't. You don't have to keep yammering on. You can do something interesting in a short space. Just in and out, just flash bang, you know, <laughs> set someone on fire. <laughs> Going back to where we're sitting right now, what does this place, how is this relevant to you or to the story? Or both? People and movement. I, I, I see here uh, just a whole assembly of characters doing interesting things. I don't always see what the interesting thing is, but they're on their way. You know, they go in and they buy a box of donuts and a 12 pack of beer a couple packs of cigarettes and they head out 
I'm wondering where are they, what are they up to? <laughs> where are they going? Um, you know, everybody goes to Circle K. Uh, people of all different ages, different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes, um, people on their way to work, on their way home from work, people who are out of work, kids who are spending their allowance money on junk food and soda, candy and all that. Um, people who are kind of down and out but still have hope when they buy lottery tickets. Um, people who are on the payphone. I'm always interested in that. Like, who uses a payphone anymore? Who's on the other 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 end of the conversation? So, Circle K makes me very curious. Um, and they have just about everything you need. They even have firewood. So, yeah, I see people buying firewood here. I'm wondering what kind of conversations they're they're going to have around that burning wood. Um, how's it relevant to the story? Um, again, it's movement and interesting people. I think sometimes people go to Circle K for a little bit of release and, and refuge. This is where they buy the things that help them make make it through every day. The alcohol, the cigarettes, the candy, uh, energy drinks. And I think that's what these characters in my story are searching for. A sense of release. Relief as well. Um, trying to make it through every day. love characters who have flaws. We love characters who are vulnerable. We love characters who have weaknesses, who are trapped by their vanity at times and fooled and you know, who feel shame and who feel doubt and regret. You know, and I think those are the people we like to hang out with are people like us, people who, um, who have hurt, you know, Maybe that's what makes fiction work for us. Is that we're, we, I mean, it seems like an obvious uh, conclusion to come to, but the idea that we're like, we, we find ourselves in those characters, um, in any kind of character, and particularly the ones that are more beaten up, <laughs> makes it feel like that the more beaten up we are, the more okay that is because it's happening to them too. And, you know, it creates perspective and it creates identity and relatability. and I don't think that's an obvious conclusion at all because it took me years to, to put that together, to figure that out. Number one, that um, characters had to have pretty substantial flaws. And two, that there's a payoff for seeing a character with flaws. And I think that payoff is the deep emotional connection that a reader makes with a character or with, a, with an, an entire story or an entire book. It's that character's human dimension. But it took me a long time to figure that out. I only think of flawed characters now. Um, I begin with, with some flaw. They all, have, they all of my characters have some flaw. I may enhance that flaw, increase that flaw to include other flaws later in subsequent drafts. 
Um, but I, you know, the, the more messed up a character, the better. So I, I'm kind of hardwired now to only want to work with people on the page who have something missing, who have some sort of void that their choices are an attempt to fill. I don't believe in, in a state of perfection for, for any human being. I think the, that which is flawed um, are the, th the things that cause the most discomfort for a human being. The things that create the most discomfort compel a person to move forward or move backward. And, and that's the raw material I feel like I want to work with the most is that level of, of trouble and discomfort. The flaws that a character... And a character doesn't even have to be entirely conscious of the flaws in order to be interesting. They only need to move and make choices. We can see those flaws. And the flaws can be subtle and understated. Um, could be dishonesty. Um, could be depression. Whatever creates a, a strong sense of, of unease and discomfort for, for a human being. The, um, the woman in the story clearly has some sort of issue. <laughs> I don't want to be an armchair you know, psychologist, but what do you think is, is going on with her? I think she needs to be seriously medicated. I think she probably should be in a hospital. The sad thing is she probably can't afford to be in a hospital. And she probably can't afford to be medicated for that matter. Um, doesn't have the resources to find the resources to help her. Doesn't even know they're out there. Um, and I, I would imagine she's probably bipolar. What do you think happens to these two? You know, I hope Darna gets some help. I think uh, he's going to reach a point where he, he can't live with her anymore. And he's going to go find something out. Maybe a community resource of some sort in Mesa um, or in Phoenix or Maricopa County where he can get her some help. That's what I hope is going to happen. And I hope they stay together. But you think they do? You think yes. he stays with her? I think he stays with her. Does that feel true to your own relationship? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I sometimes, often, still feel very lucky that my wife didn't split for good. You know, she could have. Um, it would have been completely within reason for her to say, I just can't do this. I can't live with this insanity it's not good for me it's not good for our son but um, yeah she stuck with me do you think it helped it's so interesting you know there's this old idea that like people are drawn to the people who I don't know people tend to be drawn in relationships to people who are either going to bring out their best or their worst or both right <laughs> um, do you think Maybe secretly, sometime in your past, you were drawn to her maybe a little bit because she 
she has uh, uh, that in her past, like a, 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 an important relationship with, with a, a mental struggle like that? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And she has said as well that the reason she grew up with it was that someday she'd meet me and she'd you know, know or understand better how to live with it. Which is beautiful. I'm very, very lucky. I'm Darna. Or I was Darna. And, and part of me will always be Darna. 